This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have an interview with Ari Rudenko. Our dinosaur of the day is Archaeopteryx, and we have a bunch of exciting dinosaur news. Maybe even more exciting dinosaur news than usual, because there are a few big discoveries. Yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Before we get into all that, though, we just want to give a quick shout out. Thank you to our patrons, Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, and the Georges family. Thanks, everyone, for your support. We hope you're enjoying learning about dinosaurs. And if you haven't done so yet, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dino and join our growing group of supporters. Yeah. So jumping right into the news, like I alluded to, we have another new dinosaur discovery, this one from Brazil, south of Sao Paulo. It's actually way down by Uruguay. It's actually four individuals likely representing two species, but even though they're both dinosauromorphs, it looks like only one is an actual dinosaur. And when you're getting to these very early discoveries, it's pretty hard to draw the line sometimes. It was published in the journal Current Biology by Sergio Cabriera and others. And dinosaur-wise, they found a very early sauropodomorph and named it Buriolestes schultzi, with a partial skull, limbs, hips, and a lot of vertebrae. It was pretty complete for such an old find. And the name Buriolestes comes from the Burial family, and schultzi honors paleontologist Cesar Schultz. The dinosaur looks to be about one and a half meters or about five feet long, and it has carnivore-looking teeth, and really from a distance, it looks more like a small theropod than a sauropod, but that's just kind of the weirdness that happens in the early dinosaur evolution where sauropodomorphs are bipedal and some of them are going quadrupedal and some of them are carnivorous and it's all mixed up. The other species that they found they think is a ladgerpedid, which is about half the size of Buriolestes, and is also a little less complete, although it's still one of the more complete larger pedidins found so far. And even more significant is this marks the first time a well-preserved dinosaur and larger petted were found together. The thing that makes that so interesting is that the fossils are about 230 million years old, making them right at that boundary and beginning of the dinosaur's reign. And we typically think of dinosaurs as quickly displacing all the other similarly sized animals in their niches. 
So there were all these different sort of reptile looking and, you know, lizardy guys that were getting pretty big. And then dinosaurs just kind of took everything over. That's been kind of the historical view of it. But in this case, since we found in the same fossil slab one of these dinosaurs and another dinosaur morph, it kind of shows that they coexisted at least for a little while. And since they're about 230 million years old, that's getting into the dinosaur diversification point where you would expect not to see a lot of these dinosaur morphs running around. And one of the authors, Max Langer, said, quote, we now know for sure that dinosaurs and dinosaur precursors lived alongside one another and that the rise of dinosaurs was more gradual, not a fast overtaking of other animals of the time, end quote. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting that we had dinosaurs and the dinosaur ancestors kind of co-mingling there a little bit longer than we thought before. Yeah, makes sense, though, for them to take a while to grow and take over. True. Next, thanks to Joaquin for sending us this article about a new dinosaur from China. First off, it was discovered at a construction site in Guangzhou, southern China, after a TNT blast. And the TNT did destroy a bit of the back of the animal, but if they hadn't been digging and using TNT, they probably wouldn't have found it in the first place. So it's not really too terrible, I guess. <laughs> They also said that the collection wasn't perfect since it was done by a farmer and a construction worker, and it was done at an active construction site, so it wasn't really documented at all the way you'd expect a paleontology find to be documented with the position and all these like very precise measurements about where different bones were. They basically just pulled it out and then told people later where they found it. But it's still one of the more impressive oviraptorid fossils that I've seen. And it's kind of funny. There's a drill hole where the TNT was placed that's actually in the fossil substrate. So when you look at the fossilized oviraptorid, you can see the little marking next to it where they drilled for the TNT, which I think is kind of a cool detail. The specimen was published in Nature's Scientific Reports by Jun Chang Lu and others. And they named the dinosaur Tong Tianlong Limosus, which essentially translates to muddy dragon on the road to heaven. <laughs> it's a good one. It is. Part of that road to heaven thing comes from the kind of locality name just happens to also mean that. And they always name them after localities. And so they just call it mud dragon for short. Also good. Yes. <laughs> It's a pretty good name because it's stretched out as if it's trying to escape mud that it's stuck in. And <laughs> yeah, they describe it as, quote, an unusual splayed limb and raised head posture, end quote. And its head is literally up out of the rock that the rest of the fossil is embedded in. And I don't think I've ever seen a fossil quite like it. It's when they excavated around the fossil, when they prepared it. Its neck is like sticking up out of the rock and the rest of the body is flat in the same plane. And then its head is sticking up. Yeah, it's really cool looking. And the other thing that makes it unique is that its head is a little bit more dome-like than the crest that you get on most oviraptorids. 
and they estimate that it's from the late Cretaceous, although the sediment that they pulled it out of hasn't had a lot of analysis done on the exact age range, so we're not really sure exactly when it's from. And as expected by an oviraptorid, it has a toothless beak, and it probably had feathers, although it didn't appear that there were any feathers preserved with this specimen. The researchers say it's somewhere between the size of a sheep and a donkey, but I think they're referring to the overall length more than the weight, since it's definitely a pretty lanky little, you know, runner. Not like a donkey. So kind of how you would imagine a dragon, almost like a Chinese dragon. Sort of, Long, yeah. I don't know about the head, but... Yeah, I mean, oviraptorids in general are pretty gracile, as they say. Mm-hmm. Meaning kind of like graceful, long limbs and things. Cool. And as an aside, TNT and dynamite are not the same thing. Pretty much every article said that it was discovered during a dynamite blast. It wasn't. It was a TNT blast. Dynamite is nitroglycerin with some stabilizer in it. TNT is trinitrotoluene, which is a totally different chemical and has different properties. And Yeah. So it was TNT, not dynamite. Good to know. <laughs> the chemist in me was very bothered by all these misreportings of dynamite. I see that. Yeah. <laughs> In other discovery news, David Evans from the University of Toronto and a team have found two pachycephalosaur skulls, which gives some insight into how they evolved, according to Live Science. So the skulls are mostly complete. One is about 76.5 million years old, the other is about 73.5 million years old, and both were found in southern mountain states, so Utah and New Mexico specifically. Most pachycephalosaurids have been found in Alberta and Montana. So these skulls may show that pachycephalosaurids diversified in the south and then went up north and gave rise to Stegoceras. Both skulls were pretty small. They're probably about the size of a German shepherd, according to the article, though the one from Utah was about 20% bigger than the one from New Mexico. And they also both had these unusual bony knobs on the back of their skulls, so they might belong to a new genera. The study about these skulls hasn't yet been published, but it was presented at SVP this year. Yeah, I remember that talk. That was a pretty interesting one. It's always cool to see pictures of new pachycephalosaur heads. Next up, I have a correction about something I said, I think, last week. I mentioned that alpha carotene is in mammals and beta carotene is in reptiles. But it turns out alpha carotene is also in dinosaurs, And apparently alpha carotene is in pretty much all vertebrates, but beta carotene is, like I said before, unique to reptiles and birds. So the famous Sidipati Olsmolske fossil, which is a preserved oviraptorid which fossilized over its nest, that's why it's kind of famous, was originally described as potentially having a preserved keratin sheath over its claws, But no one had really done a lot of looking into if that was the case or not. If you imagine you've got the bone of the claw, and then on a real animal, there would be a keratin covering over the bone. So like a cat doesn't just have like bones for claws. They have like a keratin thing that covers it and protects the bone and then also can be sharper that way. So... When you looked at this fossil, you could see like a very sharp claw shape sticking out, kind of like an outline of it around where the bone was. So they figured it was probably a keratin sheath. And a new study in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B 
by Alison Moyer and others tried to test to see if that keratin sheath was in fact what was shown there. So they used some of that awesome beta carotene antibody technique to test the fossil. And they also used an emu and ostrich cloth sheath for comparison. By the way, the method for using beta carotene antibodies is a type of immunohistochemical test, which is a pretty fun word, immunohistochemical. And so under an electron microscope, the city potty and emu sheaths both have a kind of overlapping sheet structure from that beta carotene, and they have other similar details in common. And the beta carotene antibodies grabbed onto the suspected sheath material, and that led the researchers to believe that they do in fact have the outline of a preserved sheath, and it's not just some other artifact making it look like where a sheath might have been. Apparently, the outer layer of modern reptile claws is made from that tough beta carotene, but the inner layer is the softer alpha carotene, which is why they think the outer layer survives better and why they were left with just this kind of outline of the edge of the carotene sheath rather than kind of the whole thing. They also believe that calcium played a role in the preservation of the claw sheath since they found a bunch of calcium in the city potty specimen, but not in the emu sheath. And in fact, once they removed the calcium from the fossil, the beta-carotene antibodies bound with the fossil much more strongly, kind of showing that the calcium had bound to this carotene sheath in the fossilization process and probably helped to kind of protect it while it was buried for 75 million years. <laughs> so they're a little bit hopeful that in the future we'll be able to elucidate a little bit more about when this beta carotene evolved, although it was probably before dinosaurs, so. Whoops. I just realized that I've been saying carotene instead of keratin, and carotene is a precursor to vitamin A, whereas keratin is the thing that you find in scales and skin. So that should have been keratin, not carotene. Yeah. Still interesting, though. Next, the host venues for Dippy, the Diplodocus from the Natural History Museum in London, have been announced, which is pretty exciting. Dippy will be going to eight venues over three years, and venues include a cathedral and museums and a community center, and sites include Belfast, Birmingham, Glasgow, and Dorset. And all the sites will be free to the public, which is cool. So the idea is for Dippy to go to unusual locations to get visitors who may not normally visit a museum. And to give a little background, and we've talked about Dippy a few times on this show, Dippy's been at the Natural History Museum in London since 1905 and has been in the Central Hall since 1979, which is the one of the first things you see when you walk into the museum. But Dippy will be replaced by a blue whale skeleton, so Dippy is actually a cast of a Diplodocus, and the blue whale skeleton is real. According to The Guardian, Dippy's last day on display will be January 4th, and that's going to be after a month of dinosaur celebrations at the museum. And then conservators will spend a year preparing Dippy for the dinosaur tour. And as you may remember from a recent episode, that will actually be Research Casting International working on Dippy. Yep, and the... Incoming blue whale. <laughs> yep. 
It's cool that they're going to lots of smaller areas where people might not go to museums because that's a really neat thing to see and give them a chance to see it before it disappears. I don't know if Dippy will disappear, but... Yeah. Last I heard, they hadn't found a final spot for it to hang out. Well, they've got three years, four years, if you include the year it'll take to get them ready. Oh, true, yeah. Maybe they'll put it permanently in a cathedral. That would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Next, according to the Indian Express, there are fossils that were found in India over 100 years ago that have yet to be restored. Charles Matley, who was a British paleontologist, found a lot of dinosaur fossils in the early 1900s. Unfortunately, some of them are missing or in bad shape. Some of them were packed in 1932 and haven't been opened since then. And Matley went on two expeditions between 1917 to 1921 and 1932 to 1933, and the bones he found were taken to the Natural History Museum in London, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and the Indian Museum. And many of them were prepared and described in Britain and America and then returned to India, but then some of them also stayed packed in the Indian Museum. And now the Geological Survey of India and the University of Michigan are working together to recover missing fossils in museum collections. And there's already been some success as the Indian Museum and Geological Survey of India have recovered a misplaced holotype, the caudal vertebra, of Titanosaurus indicus, which is India's first dinosaur. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It's a good name for India's first dinosaur. It's got Indy. I'm guessing Indicus refers to India. Yeah, and I like that it's a titanosaur. (laughs) Totally impartial. (laughs) Speaking of large, George Franson and a man from the U.S. Oh, sorry. Poor George. George. That's insulting. No, not that George is large. Let me get to it. He's got a large collection. So he now holds the Guinness World Record for largest collection of fossilized poop. Oh. See where I was going there? I do. Yeah. So he's, I have no idea what he looks like, but he's collected 1,277 coprolites from 15 states in eight or nine countries. It was unclear in the article, though not all of them are from dinosaurs. His largest one is actually from an ancient crocodilian. Interesting. But I didn't realize that that could be a world record. That's a lot of poop. Yep. That seems like the kind of thing that a world record book based on, you know, a beer company or whatever. Isn't there origin like people arguing in bars? That seems like a question that someone would argue about. Like, who has the most poop in their collection? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) My friend George. (laughs) Next, thanks to Mark, who shared this one with us via Facebook. In Tokyo, on Corp, a Japanese company, has made the world's biggest dinosaur robots, according to ITV News and the Indian Express. So the company plans to build a dinosaur theme park, and they unveiled their T-Rex, which is about 26 feet or 8 meters tall and weighs about 83 pounds or 38 kilograms. And they unveiled it at a Tokyo hotel where it roared and stomped towards an audience in an event hall and then pretended to bite off the head of its caretaker. Jeez. And then Allosaurus and at least one raptor joined in on the fun. And we'll share a link with the video. You can see it for yourself. It's pretty entertaining. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. 26 feet tall. Giant robot dinosaur. (laughs) If you're in Connecticut, you may have heard that Bob Bakker was just in town. 
They are still continuing their 50-year anniversary celebration of that discovery of dinosaur tracks at, at what's now known as Dinosaur Park. So having completed his undergraduate degree at Yale, which is in Connecticut, he spoke about how Connecticut is the real Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> and... Given that the site of Dinosaur Park has 2,000 early Jurassic dinosaur footprints, it's not too bad of an analogy. I didn't realize it, but only 500 of the footprints are actually uncovered and in the museum. It's kind of, the museum is basically a big dome covering footprints to protect them and you know make it a nicer place to look at them. The rest of the footprints are buried around the museum, but they would like to expand the museum and then uncover them and show off all these other dinosaur footprints that are in the area. Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't realize they only un uncovered about a quarter of them. Yeah, reminds me of Dinosaur National Monument. Yeah. The Carnegie Quarry. Yeah. And I think based on what they wrote, I think they have uncovered them temporarily to kind of document what's there, but then the best way to preserve it was just to kind of like rebury it than leaving it exposed to all the elements. Hmm. Cool. Yep. So next, Auckland Botanic Gardens in New Zealand will start having dinosaur performances with a T-Rex, raptor, and crested theropod, according to Scoop and YouTube. From November 19th through February 5th, visitors can see three shows a day on weekends, and there are also activities for kids, like digging for fossils. And to promote the show... T-Rex showed up at their cafe, and cafe manager Derek Owen said, quote, She ordered the carnivore special but spat out the salad. It was fascinating to see how she managed a knife and fork with those tiny arms and no opposable thumbs. <laughs> End quote. And we'll post a link so you can see it's a really short video, and the T-Rex is not using a knife and fork, so we'll just take that cafe manager's word for it. <laughs> According to Broadway World, on December 24th, Dinosaurs Circus will start performing around Israel to celebrate Hanukkah. There will be dinosaur puppets, acrobats, circus performers, dancers, music, and videos. And here's the official description of the show. Quote, two children and dinosaur puppets are trying to join the big circus and don't succeed. But in their dream, they meet the dinosaur fairy. The fairy brings the puppets to life and together with the children, they go on a magical journey around the world. The children meet surprising and colorful characters from all around the world and together they create the dinosaur circus. In the highlight moment, when they plan to return back to the country, they're stranded on the lost island in which they meet real dinosaurs that weren't extinct from the world. Will they help them or is their fate sealed and they will stay on the island forever? End quote. So it sounds interesting. Interesting mix of different kind of performances. Yeah, I wonder what that what that would even be like. Stunts with puppets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds cool. Just imagine like a guy on a trampoline with hand puppets or something, but it's not hand puppets, it's life size puppets. Okay. Yeah. Then a guy in a T Rex costume on a trampoline? Maybe. <laughs> Next, we've talked about William Hayes, the defensive lineman for the L.A. Rams, and how he doesn't believe that dinosaurs existed, but does believe in the possibility of mermaids existing. So Jimmy Kimmel took Hayes to the Natural History Museum in L.A. to try to get him to believe. And it's an interesting video, pretty, pretty lighthearted, entertaining. We'll post a link so you can watch it. But uh, in it, he said that 
he never believed in dinosaurs, even as a kid. And then when he sees the dinosaurs in the museum, he says that they look like clay to him. Hmm. And he believes that dinosaur bones were planted in the ground for the paleontologists who are digging them up. And he also doesn't believe that birds are dinosaurs. But he did say he now believes in unicorns after looking at a skeleton of a horse. (laughs) And then towards the end of the video, a dinosaur puppet with feathers comes out and starts growling at Hayes and Kimmel. But that still doesn't sway him. I don't know why that would. Well, actually, based on the unicorn thing, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I can't tell if he's joking because sometimes he seems like he's joking. But anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe at this point he just doesn't want to admit it or he's just become entrenched in like the, you know, you don't want to admit you're wrong after all this time. I don't know. Could be. In South Philadelphia, one woman, Shauna Van Elsis, wore an inflatable T-Rex costume when she voted. So she took the costume with her because she didn't want to scare anyone. And she asked the poll workers if she could vote in the costume. And then they said yes. And I guess a couple people found it insulting but most people liked it and they took photos and videos with her and there's no rule in pennsylvania against voting in a costume that's non-political and the only thing she had to do was confirm her identity and not intimidate anyone (laughs) (laughs) it'd be easy to intimidate somebody in a t-rex costume though it would but it sounds like she took extra steps to make sure everyone was okay with it i want somebody probably could make an argument about a t-rex costume being political but i don't know It's not overtly political, I guess. I guess. (laughs) You might not be thinking of it that way. Yeah. And I don't think either party is like pro or anti-dinosaur right now. And this woman, (laughs) she did it because she saw it. She hadn't put it away yet from Halloween. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's funny. Last in the news, dinosaur fashion is trending this fall. This is according to Bustle. So the site shared photos of celebrities wearing Coach's dinosaur sweater, which debuted at New York Fashion Week and costs the low, low price of $700. Oof. (laughs) But it is a fun-looking sweater. The site also shared 11 dinosaur items that are cheaper, uh, although some... I guess compared to $700, yeah, some are still a bit expensive, but they had a dinosaur pajama set, t-shirt and leggings for $39, a dinosaur necklace that looks like a T-Rex skeleton walking for $182, though I found cheaper versions online. Is that the one that you have like two of? No. Oh. (laughs) That was the cheaper version. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's also glow in the dark dinosaur socks for $12 and a dinosaur dress for $80. Those sound more reasonable. Although that whole sock trend of spending like over $10 on a pair of socks, I don't really understand. It's glow in the dark. Yeah. Although I do wonder what happens when you wash it. Does does it lose its glow? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our interview with Ari Rudenko. Ari Rudenko is an experimental dance choreographer and director whose latest work, Para Avis, Dancing with Dinosaurs, aims to create a dance performance style by translating raptor movements and behavior to the human body. Uh, That would be correct. And I do have a new title for the permutation of the project I'm working on, The Ghost of Hell Creek, which is... Uh, the title that I'm currently using for a stage show concept for a feature piece. Awesome. And that's one permutation of several within the Umbrella Project. Cool. So what originally inspired you to learn dance and express science via dance? Well, learning dance started... I enjoyed uh, movement all through my childhood growing up. Uh, But I turned to the stage really at the end of my undergraduate program, which was actually in philosophy, Hmm. because I felt the stage was a place where a lot of the concepts and ideas that I was playing with could really find a form of expression where they could connect with the public. And there was a number of performance groups that were really inspiring me deeply at that time and still do to this day. And... So I became very interested in both nonverbal expression of ideas and also all of the elements of stagecraft, like costume design and uh, space and aesthetics, as well as the human body and how those confluence of things could come together to uh, express ideas in ways that I felt writing couldn't at that time. Yeah. And you have an amazing ability to dance. When Sabrina and I were watching it, we were saying, like, there's no way I could do that move. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, uh, you've definitely found a good uh, fit for your skills. It's cool. So thank you. Along those lines, the other big question aside from why dance about dinosaurs, how did you end up in Indonesia? In 2012, I got a postgraduate scholarship to study at the Art Institute of Indonesia in Bali for dance. Hmm. 
And my interest at that time had a lot to do with ceremony in Bali and trance states and other states of altered consciousness, which are cultivated in their rituals, which are held in very public spaces. And there's usage of costume, usage of masks and other artistic elements. And I was very interested in the way all of those different elements came together uh, in ceremonial spaces there. So that was what initially drew me to Indonesia. And once I moved there, I really fell in love. I developed a large group of friends and continued to build these uh, contemporary dance performances while studying traditional dance there. Yeah. Do you speak fluent? Is it Indonesian? Is that the language? What's the... Uh, yeah, Bahasa Indonesia or Indonesian. I would say I have a confident but imperfect <laughs> uh, ability to speak right now. It seems like almost no one will commit to being bilingual when you ask them. But in the videos, <laughs> it sounds like I couldn't tell if English or Indonesian was your first language. So to me, it sounded great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so what is trance? I, I saw that come up a couple times in your descriptions, what does that mean? Trance for me most basically would be where some energetic state flows through the body, which is not experienced to be part of the persona or ego identity of the person. Hmm. Uh, and that can take on many different forms in different contexts. Okay. That makes a lot of sense in this case, because you're trying to put yourself in a totally different species that would be helpful. Indeed. <laughs> So what led you to uh, raptors specifically as a source of material? Well, I grew up as a child in the San Juan Islands, um, just south of Vancouver Island in the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest. And there are a lot of eagles and turkey vultures all around there. There are nests right by my house. So those creatures were a big part of my childhood experience. And I was really interested in bones as a kid. I was definitely would uh, if uh, one of those birds passed away close to the house i would collect the bones and try to reassemble the skeletons mm. and when we moved to the city when i was a little bit older i got very interested in paleontology and especially the evolution of birds and raptor dinosaurs you probably know the book by robert bacher raptor red oh yeah <laughs> yeah that was my favorite book actually as a kid in third fourth fifth grade and I just recently remembered that book and realized what effect it must have had on my imagination uh, because my current performance work is something in that vein. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting book. I like yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my interest in paleontology was present throughout my childhood. I was, I was interested in visual art as a kid. I was doing a lot of paleo art drawings and trying to model dinosaurs in clay. Uh, and I even, I was also a pianist as a kid. Mm. I was being trained as a concert pianist and I created a piece based on uh, these dinosaur scenes that were living in my imagination. Mm. So it was very much through the arts exploring those prehistoric worlds. Uh, but as I grew up, things shifted and other things came to the forefront of what I was interested in. And my interest in dinosaurs really rekindled with all the new discoveries coming from China mm -hmm. and the new uh, theoretical models about the evolution of birds. There's a particular fossil, and the way the creature is fossilized is 
straight on. So each of its arms are or wings <laughs> are splayed out to each side, and each of its legs are also splayed out to each side. Mm. And when I saw that fossil, I actually really saw an Indonesian dancer in that shape. Hmm. And I started to clue in to how these uh, very bird-like dances that are popular in Indonesia and from their tradition have this interesting resonance or correspondence with the fossils that were coming out of China, uh, just in terms of the delicacy of the fingers and those claws and some of the shape, body shapes. And so my imagination started to digest all this information. And I started to conceive of this raptor-like dance form. That's really interesting. So the Indonesian dance style already had a lot of bird influence in it. How did that, it does. what does that kind of look like? I saw your dances, but I don't know. Mm, what they well, my dance is influence but certainly very different from traditional indonesian dances uh but there are a lot of very bird-like uh, delicate movements bobs of the head the way the fingers will vibrate or form wing-like shapes mm. and in especially west indonesian dances balinese and east javanese dance the leg positions are very low and very delicate and the uh, toes are usually activated and pointed upwards which I started to, in my imagination, see as that sickle claw of the raptor dinosaur. Hmm. That's interesting. I saw you have a great behind-the-scenes video where you, while in Indonesia, kind of interacted with a chicken, sort of mimicking its moves and learning how to move more like a mm. dinosaur. What other aspects did you add to your performance aside from like the bobbing of the head and the leg position and things? That were drawn from the chickens? Yeah. Well, we just, uh, me and the group of Indonesian performers that I was working with at that time were living in a remote village uh, north of Java in an area called Madura in mm. Indonesia. And there are a lot of chickens and Indonesian chickens are a bit different from our Western chickens. They're very athletic, agile, graceful creatures. And the villagers there, including my friends, have a great comfort with the chickens. You can see in the video that they massage the chickens, they can bathe them and wash them and stretch them, even doing <laughs> little chicken yoga. And uh, so that comfort that the chickens had with us allowed us to really get our hands on the chickens and really feel how the wings connect to the shoulders and how the muscles work and how the breath is working inside of the body. So we were going through this process of discussing the relationship between dinosaurs and birds and using all of this investigation, both in a tactile way in terms of touching and massaging the chicken and experimenting with how it reacted uh, to different stimulus or circumstances. And then also with the performers in this large cage with the chickens, following them, uh, trying to copy their gait, their timing the way they interacted with each other and would use each of those experiments to build up this chicken body, which we would then enlarge and extend into this raptor dinosaur body. Mm. Yeah, that was a really interesting process to watch all the, I remember specifically too, there was a whole part where you guys were kind of imitating the way it breathes and how its tongue moves that I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, and I've been learning a little bit more recently about the uh, air sac, avian air sacs, and the way avian respiratory systems work, and the fact that dinosaurs had very similar respiratory systems. And it's quite different from a human's, but it's also interesting to explore with imagining those air sacs within our rib cages mm. and trying to feel what it would be like to be either a bird or a dinosaur and to be able to absorb oxygen in this way. Yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, yeah, more handy than our mammal lungs. Yeah. Seems like it supercharges you with oxygen. <laughs> yeah, you need that if you're going to fly, I guess. Although bats mm -hmm. don't do it, I don't know. Yeah, bats are a mystery. That's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I also don't know. Cool. Actually, it's interesting. We talked to somebody at SVP who was from a museum in Europe, and he mm. had just set up an interactive display in his museum where there was a T-Rex in front of you, and then two people stood in front of the screen. There's, I mean, the T-Rex is on a screen. It's a fake you know, oh. digital T-Rex. Okay. I see, I see. Uh -huh. And it, it's supposed to be a female and you were supposed to be a male and the other mm. person next to you is supposed to be a male and you're supposed to dance and like mimic a T-Rex, you know, flapping arms and stuff. And That is incredible. Yeah. I really love that. And please send me that link if you have <laughs> I a link will. to that museum and that guy. I'll find it and send it to you because it was really interesting. He did a bunch of interactive stuff. Yeah. And then it declared a winner too. The T-Rex would pick the better <laughs> mate. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. I'm just curious if it, in that exhibit they have any attempts at reconstructing what a T-Rex courtship dance might have looked like. I, I haven't seen any models of that yet. I think it was pretty like cheesy, you know, like flap like mm -hmm. a chicken and then scrape your feet more than... And a realistic interpretation like you're trying to do. <laughs> but yeah. still, it's still I cool. definitely appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. it's adorable. <laughs> cool. Mm. So you also, you sent me a couple questions. Do you want to talk about those at all? Yeah, I would love to. Cool. The first question is for me in a way the most interesting. As a paleontologist or dinosaur enthusiast, how do dinosaurs and prehistoric ecosystems live in your imagination? That is a very interesting question. And we interviewed a guy named Brian Noble, who's a anthropologist, but he's interested mm -hmm. in dinosaurs. And he talks a lot about how there's this like inevitable interplay, even in the most stringent of scientists, between their imagination and media and the scientific understanding of what dinosaurs are like. And I constantly find myself trying to force specific like ecosystems to appear a certain way in my mind and mm -hmm. it's like a constant struggle because you see jurassic park a hundred times and <laughs> you're just like that's what you think of when you think of a dinosaur and you have to like beat it into your brain like no they probably had feathers and at mm -hmm. svp this year there were a couple talks <clears throat> where they were talking about how like t-rex probably had lips covering their teeth mm, and yep, i've been reading that as well yeah so there's there's so many things that are really interesting but are completely different than the way dinosaurs are usually portrayed that yeah and then the bigger thing even for me is remembering that there are other animals in the ecosystem than just dinosaurs mm. <laughs> of course like the little mammals or you know all the different lizards that might have been scurrying around or 
who knows mm-hmm. what all the invertebrates too and bugs and the fact that all the greenery is totally different like i always imagine grass i can't stop right. imagining grass but there wasn't grass mm-hmm. for most of the time <laughs> right so yeah it was i went to the museum of the rockies on my road trip on the way to colorado here and uh alongside all of the T-Rexes and the Triceratops that they had there. They also had displays of microfossils from the Hell Creek ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting for me to get into those micro details and trying to imagine, you know, if you were investigating below a tree stump or something in yeah. Hell Creek, what would that look like and who would be scurrying around? Yeah. And, and uh, mm-hmm. on that note, I often see people forget or maybe just not think about it enough where they think, you know, like the Badlands looked like the Badlands in the Cretaceous and they forget that it was like a big forest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been extremely green. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe to expand a little bit on the stage show that I'm developing Mm -hmm. in relationship to this question, uh, The Ghost of Hell Creek, which I'm envisioning as a feature length stage production will be an investigation of the world just before, during, and after the extinction event with the meteor in the Hell Creek ecosystem, starring Dakota Raptor, which, as probably most of your audience has already heard, is the giant feathered raptor dinosaur that was discovered by Robert De Palma in the Hell Creek ecosystem just a few years ago. Yeah, that one's great. (laughs) It's a beautiful creature. And very mysterious and rare, which is also makes it an interesting star for the production. And the piece is also about our plesiodapiform or protoprimate ancestors uh, that would have been just evolving either right after or, of course, the predecessors to the creatures that were found right after the extinction event would have been living within that ecosystem just before and during the extinction event. Mm. And so I'm looking in to our own bodies and our own human ancestry, leading back to the plesiodapiforms and leading back to that time and place. And the relationship between these dinosaurs, these Dakota raptors, which would have ruled the ecosystem just before the meteor hit, and how the dinosaurs would have gone through this process of very painful extinction during the aftermath of the meteor and how miraculously our ancestors survived that time. Yeah. And I'm interested in collaborating closely with paleontologists on this project in part because I am interested in how these prehistoric ecosystems, Hell Creek, for example, is living actively in the imagination of someone who's devoting their life to studying all of the details of that system. And because a paleontologist, say Robert De Palma, who is uh, devoting a lot of his career to studying Dakota raptor specifically, he is going deeply into the anatomy, the behavior, exactly how high could it lift its wings? How fast could it run? Was it social or not? What was its prey? And yeah, what was its breathing like? What was its timing like as it moved, as it stalked its prey or as it engaged in courtship or mating dances, what might those have actually looked like. All of these details in the imagination of the paleontologists are what I'm interested in absorbing and 
channeling through the body of my performers into this active imagination uh, from that ecosystem that we want to create on stage. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me a little bit. Have you gotten a chance to see the Walking with Dinosaurs show? I have definitely seen video of it online, but I have not seen it in person. It looks fabulous. It looks really fun. Yeah, that's. I think that's probably Sabrina and my favorite dinosaur show we've ever seen. But mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's kind of similar in in context to that. But I mean, it's also mm-hmm. based on a show. I think the the show Walking with Dinosaurs was either in the late '90s or early 2000s. So it's not. Mm. It's not super up to date and then it's got Mm -hmm. a little bit of a kid focus and it's Mm -hmm. easier for them too because they make robotic dinosaurs. They don't have to physically get on stage and try to recreate Mm -hmm. the motions. But I do really love those puppets. They are Uh, awesome. I've also, yeah, and I've been a little bit in communication with the LA Museum of Natural History, which also has a a dinosaur show with uh, puppets that are very similar to the ones in the Walking with Dinosaurs show. Yeah, we just and, saw that. It was pretty cool. And they uh, have feathers all over, sort of feathers. It's more like fuzz all over their T-Rex. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, when I get to California, I'm uh, definitely going to make a point of meeting with them and meeting with the actors that are playing those dinosaurs because I'm very interested in their process, how they train themselves into those characters. And I do know that the they have some microphones set up inside of the mm-hmm. dinosaurs. So the sounds that they're making are actually being made by the performers. Yeah. I've actually been inside one of those. <laughs> oh, nice. What was it like? I got inside a Parasaurolophus because mm-hmm. actually at Sabrina and my wedding, we had one of those dinosaurs, like a T-Rex style one in it, a guy in that suit. <laughs> Fantastic. But I got to get inside this Parasaurolophus and they're like, you're a little tall. You might have to get in this. And they were explaining to me a little bit about how like there's a you have to be pretty short in order to get into the T-Rex because otherwise Mm. you'd be so hunched over inside Mm. it. It would be really uncomfortable. And it's heavy, too, because you have to basically (laughs) wear the thing. So Mm -hmm. you you basically put it on like a backpack and then it weighs, I don't know, 50 to 100 pounds. And then. You've got little levers and things like you'd expect inside a puppet. And there's a little screen that shows out its mouth. So, you know, there's a little camera in there so you can kind of see where mm-hmm. you are. And then a microphone. And a, I think this one had a few buttons so that you could make like a mm-hmm. sneezing sound and you could like spray water <laughs> with a handle and stuff. But it's, it's I can't, genius, really. Yeah. I can't imagine trying to operate that thing and look like anything other than a guy trying to carry 100 pounds. <laughs> It's, yeah. It's impressive. I'm quite interested in, in how they train into them because from the little clips that I've seen, yeah, they do get a pretty exciting and almost realistic sense of the dinosaur. Yeah, it's really cool. I, yeah, I'm it's... amazed. And also in your production, it's impressive to see how many of these dinosaur-like motions you can achieve and even more impressive to me, honestly, is staying in that character the whole time and not, mm. I don't know, that must just be that I'm not a stage performer, but <laughs> you pull it off well. Yeah, yeah. my investigation is a little bit different than those Walking with Dinosaur shows in the sense that I am really interested in how a human body embodies this information and this character and not erasing the human on stage. You're definitely seeing 
dancers or you're seeing human bodies in motion, but yeah. you're seeing this transformation as the character of the dinosaur infuses every element of the physicality and emotional quality, psychology of the performer, uh, that transformation is something that I'm very interested in. Yeah, it's really cool. The other thing in your Ghost of Hell Creek description, you have a picture mm -hmm. with kind of a, a preliminary drawing of, I'm guessing it's you, with a Dakota mm -hmm. Raptor kind of uh, skeleton, partial skeleton sticking out in front and behind you with some feathers and things. How, mm -hmm. how long do you think you could keep up staying in a pose where your back is horizontal and this mm. suit would work like, I don't know, that seems, seems difficult. Uh, even, even without the suit, uh, lower back pain is one of my uh, major problems that I've mm. run into in creating this work so far. And I'm playing with a number of different postures that can achieve the dinosaur shape or form and yet also allow for breathing room for the lower back muscles so mm. that there isn't major cramping or uh, physical problems with the dancers. For this uh, costume uh, concept, which I created in the early days of conceiving this piece, which is based on the skeleton or fossil of the Dakota Raptor and has a fossil skull extended in front of the face of the performer. It has a long, stiff tail that would attach to the butt of the performer and has wings that will come off of the hands and claws that attach to the fingers. So it's some hybrid of fossil dinosaur and human body. This is something that I'm definitely interested in creating when the time comes around. It's not my first priority with creating this work, but it is something that given uh, funding, I would be interested in creating. And I am curious what it will be like to actually work with the long tail like that extending from the body of the dancer and how that counterbalance can affect motion. Hmm. Uh, there's, if it's made well, it can definitely allow for whole nother experience of motion that uh, the human body without these accoutrements uh, can't, uh, especially in terms of the counterbalance hmm. of the head and the tail. But those are all experiments that we'll really have to wait for a time when I have uh, funding for this project to develop the costumes. So we will see. But um, Robert De Palma did offer in my correspondence with him to uh, allow uh, for casting of the skeletal bones or the reconstruction of the Dakota Raptor skeleton and scale it to human form and hopefully cast it in some quite lightweight but durable material so that it won't be causing yeah more physical pain for the performers than they need. Yeah, that seems like the if you had to name the biggest difference between the human body and a dinosaur, it's that spine is horizontal versus upright. Mm -hmm. difficulty yeah um you can see in the solo show that i did i'm now really working with not a fully horizontal body but with a very much an arched back mm. and that arched back is coming straight from indonesian traditional dance both balinese and javanese and many other dances in indonesia 
basically fix that arched back with the shoulders pushed back and the butt pushed up. They say you should be able to hold a mango in the small of your back. Hmm. And so I've been training in that posture for quite a while. And I find that it creates some convincing representation of this dinosaur posture without needing to lean the human body all the way forward. Oh, nice. And it create and it allows for more uh, flexibility in the legs, especially to be able to run or jump or work with these different positions that are going to be, of course, crucial for creating this dinosaur movement. Yeah, that's a good point because if you're just slumped all the way over, it'd be pretty hard to do a lot of different motions with your legs. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in exploring different postures and uh, experimenting with the flexibility and strength needed to achieve these dinosaur-like motions. And in many cases for certain forms of movement, it's really a process of physical training to bring the dancer to the point where they can achieve those movements comfortably and convincingly uh so a lot of the workshops that i'm planning to be putting on especially in san francisco starting in the new years are going to be investigating a lot of those different forms and how we can begin to start with a something that's comfortable for the human body and then slowly exaggerate and exaggerate and build up the muscles and flexibility needed to maintain comfort yeah, that sounds really cool and an interesting problem to try to tackle. I don't think anyone's ever worked on that before. Mm. Mind if we move on to the next question sure. I had for you? Yeah. Which is, how does your study of prehistoric epochs and ecosystems affect your experience or perception of your own human body and your activity activity as a homo sapiens? Just a follow-up to that, would, what do you think knowledge of natural history and prehistoric epochs does for one's awareness of the present world and our place in it as humans. Yeah, so obviously the thing that immediately kind of falls away when you start to think about these things is just the science of evolution is the kind of fundamental thing. You think about just how much things can change over the course of the history of the earth or even just the last 66 million years. And to that end, I think one of the most common thoughts that I have about humans and dinosaurs is the whole debate, which usually falls on the side of humans wouldn't exist if dinosaurs didn't go extinct. <laughs> mm -hmm. But like kind of the different approaches that dinosaurs and humans have for dominating our environment and how both have been massively successful, even though they're completely different strategies. So you've got dinosaurs that are basically, you know, either trying to run as fast as possible or get so big that they can't be eaten or otherwise get so big that they can eat anything. <laughs> and then you have humans that, you know, basically we're just like spongy, you know, completely mm -hmm. useless. If you even we were near a medium sized carnivorous dinosaur, there'd be nothing we mm -hmm. can do without all our <laughs> tools and things. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost like a humbling thing where you, you think of the biggest, toughest human you can possibly imagine, you know, like, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the early 90s <laughs> or something. And then <laughs> and then like a Dakota Raptor, which is like a medium, you know, a pretty big, you know, dinosaur from its time. 
and it's just like there's no there's not even a remote comparison mm-hmm. in terms of strength and it would be bad yeah so yeah i think that's the main way that i think about it is kind of that what is it i guess like a phylogenetic sort of analysis thing where it's like what is what's being selected for in dinosaurs versus what has been selected for in homo sapiens and our ancestors and how completely different the things have evolved mm. mm-hmm. so i love looking at these different reconstructions of dinosaur phylogeny and how you've got these groups like theropods and most of them go hard towards like the carnivorous quick kind of body plan but then every once in a while there'll be this little split of herbivores that shoot off of it mm-hmm. and carve out a little niche <laughs> so. right the i don't know of course i'm gonna butcher the name now i'm gonna say but the, these these uh, the ones with the long claws oh yeah the, they're xenosaurs usually yeah they're xenosaurs that's that, it that's what i go with but if yeah. it makes you feel better at svp i <laughs> it was the first time we had gone to this society for vertebrate paleontology and the first person who goes up says a dinosaur name and it's completely different than I had been saying. And I was like, oh, crap, I've been saying this on our podcast wrong for all this time. <laughs> then the next guy comes up and he says it the way I've been saying it. So, Right. It's the whole Dinonychus versus Dinonychus. Yeah. Potato, potato. Yeah. This, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And it's because you have like English combining with chinese combining with latin like latinizations and it's just you end up with these unpronounceable or who knows how it works out yeah Mm. it makes me curious about the names of latin root dinosaurs in a chinese accent and how that comes out (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) it's really a written thing not so much spoken (laughs) yeah part of the impetus behind this question is now my my personal relationship with dinosaurs and these prehistoric ecosystems right now has a lot to do with this contemplation of a world that has no humans in it Mm -hmm. and reflecting on what that means for say culture Uh, i've been living in indonesia for the last four years and i've also lived in china and spent time in other countries like Peru and Malaysia. And for me, contemplating this world before humanity, let's say specifically dinosaurs, there's some great equalizer in that. I find that someone from Indonesia or from China or from Europe or from America or Africa can all equally appreciate these ecosystems, these creatures and these worlds uh, in almost the same kind of way. And it almost bypasses our cultural differences, our linguistic differences, our beliefs and our customs. And my interest in this project in part is how to form a kind of cross-cultural dialogue through taking dinosaurs and prehistoric ecosystems as the subject matter. Hmm. And so that's in part my interest in working with Indonesians on this project and ultimately bringing what I hope would be an Indonesian dance cast to America for a tour with this project and have this shared fascination and love of these creatures be a kind of cultural bridge. Yeah. One of Sabrina's favorite things to talk about is how dinosaurs bring people together in all sorts of different ways. 
And mm. yeah, it's not even just kids and their parents or, you know, different people in the same culture. It is very much a, a global thing because we, I know we have listeners all over the world and mm. everybody kind of responds to dinosaurs in a similar way. We don't get people from other countries saying like, oh, you know, here we think of dinosaurs as something completely different than you think of them or anything mm. like that. It, it's kind of the beauty of science in general that it is. it's just it gets boiled down to this fundamental kind of truth or you're constantly seeking the truth, especially in paleontology. And yeah, the best you can do is just iterate on it and try to learn more and more about it. And if everybody's focused on just learning and, you know, getting as much information out as possible, it makes a lot of this other kind of political stuff fall away. Mm. I really like it. That is indeed how I've been thinking. And there's the shared mystery of it as well, because we can't transport ourselves back to this ecosystem. So it is always this process of reconstruction, arguments, and in terms of that living imagination, that active imagination entering those spaces, that's something that we can share together, but we can also share the mystery of not really knowing together. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's the that mystery and that seeking is one of the qualities that I'm interested in exploring in my art. Yeah, and there's a there's a very uh, what's the word for I guess democratic or something sort of nature to it where you could be a farmer in Mongolia and discover some mm. super significant dinosaur. Like you don't have mm -hmm. to have this high education. You don't need a ton of money. You don't need anything. It's just going out and finding things. And, you know, that could change everything no matter what people in a far off land are saying, what kind of resources they're throwing at it. It's all up for grabs. Right. Very much so. And also that farmer in Mongolia that you're talking about knows their land more intimately than anyone else. So when that land is the rock from this prehistoric ecosystem, they have this working knowledge of those rocks, of that landscape. Um, they are in a way the premier expert, maybe not in a scientific way, but in a experiential way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's so important that people all around the world appreciate dinosaurs and other scientific, especially paleontological things, because otherwise, if you don't like, you know, if you don't care about it and it's on your land, you just throw it away or sell it or mm. whatever. But if you appreciate that science and the the, the significance behind the find, it, it helps everybody. Mm. And another shared element to this study uh, for me is just the maps of the earth from these prehistoric epochs. Mm -hmm. uh, even 65 million years ago, Indonesia is still under the ocean. America has this great seaway cutting right through the middle of it. And I am interested in almost holding up those maps as a kind of banner because they disrupt our notion of national boundaries <laughs> yeah. completely when you look at an earth that doesn't follow any of the geologic distinctions that we use to separate our cultures our countries today and 
I feel in somehow in that difference of that map, as well as the subject matter, we can touch some sort of commonality in the sense that we all share our mutual our, our common difference with that time mm-hmm. and with that map uh, and and the mystery in in looking and contemplating a world that looks so different from the world that we have today. Yeah, and just how arbitrary some of the things that we've set up are. <laughs> exactly, and and how transient it necessarily will be if we even go a few million years into the future. We're going to continue to see the massive changes in uh, geographical landscapes and boundaries, especially with the potential of global warming and rising sea levels. Yeah, and so. While my project right now is very much looking to the past, necessarily there's a reflection then on the future that comes from it. Yep. And that's definitely one of the biggest values that paleontology brings is if you look at something that went wrong or went right or whatever information you can glean from something that happened in the past and you see the beginnings of that now... (laughs) gives you a lot of information for things we might want to prepare for. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads pretty well into this last question, which you've touched on answers to already, which is because my Indonesian collaborators uh, often have little knowledge of the theory of, uh, theory of evolution or natural history, it's not something that's widely taught in school there. So if you could give a short message to some of my collaborators from other countries, what is, in your opinion, the most important reasons to be aware of natural history? Hmm. I guess it's really like any kind of science where the biggest, at least in my opinion, reason to go after natural history or any scientific pursuit is this ability to think critically. And Mm. I constantly see the benefits to critical thinking and being able to look at a problem and kind of analyze why you end up at this result or what could be a problem with a certain approach. And if you exercise this critical thinking ability, it kind of helps all sorts of scientific pursuits and then just, you know, general daily life, not getting caught in scams and things like that. (laughs) And Mm. if for some reason you want to discount something like evolution and say, you know, I don't believe that evolution happened, you're really just setting yourself up for not understanding a very fundamental process. And it makes it more difficult Mm. to think critically in other areas because you've now got this glaring logical fallacy where something natural is happening and you're ignoring it. So now when you want to explain something else, you either have to come up with another logical fallacy or you have to, I don't know, It starts to get really messy really quick. It's kind of like Mm. the whole notion of if you lie, then you end up lying more. It's the same Mm -hmm. kind of thing with science and natural history. If you you ignore it and you try to discount it, then you'll end up just, you know, who knows where. It's it's Mm. hard to say how misled you can get. Mm. I mean, just looking at the massive fluctuations in weather in the history of our own species is enough to be certainly aware that nothing is stable in our world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then seeing, you know, how much things have to change in order to significantly impact a group 
or a species or a, you know, clad or whatever level you're concerned with. And, you know, what what kind of signs we might be seeing on Earth right now compared to things that we've seen in the history of the planet can be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a really good way to get started in science because it's a very tangible thing. You can look at a dinosaur skeleton and imagine it walking around, whereas, you know, particle physics or something, like mm. how are you going to get into that? I think dinosaurs are probably the original way that I got interested in science. So mm-hmm. I think it as long as you go down the right road and you accept the science and you think critically about evolution and things like that and you kind of you know, don't have any preconceived notions and you leave yourself open for new discoveries, it really helps a lot in just about every aspect of life, I think. Mm. And the awareness that birds are dinosaurs can be really interesting for a lot of people. I didn't capture it on video quite, but uh, my friends that I was working with in Indonesia with the chickens were really fascinated that these chickens that they interact with and take care of and eat every day are dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And I was treating this chicken as a key, as a window into this prehistoric ecosystem. And in going through those experiments with them, there was this new appreciation of this creature uh, this new respect and in a way awe of it as being the survivor with this fantastic and grand ancestry. And it seemed to have a very tangible impact on the thinking of my friends there and myself as well, because, you know, cluing into chickens as dinosaurs uh, was, is also a new part of my process. So I found that that kind of fascination that's generated by those conversations to be really uh, wonderful and really beneficial. And it, I feel is a, a key or a first step towards a lot of other investigations. Yeah. It's really interesting, especially when you remember that some dinosaurs were very small and then you look at <laughs> birds and you're like, that's, that might be really similar to what dinosaurs were like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. I have one last question for you, which mm-hmm. is, do you have a favorite dinosaur? Dakota Raptor is too easy of an answer, isn't it? No, that's what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, well, I am currently making a performance about Dakota Raptor, so i got to say it's my working favorite. It's a beautiful creature. It's you know one of the biggest raptor dinosaurs. If you compare it with Utah Raptor, it's more agile and slim, although the same length and height approximately so i imagine it being it being one of the most graceful and incredible creatures to watch that might have ever walked the earth mm-hmm. and it also lived in the hell creek ecosystem right at the uh, up to the meteor impact so it represents really the last of its line and it partakes in that dramatic story uh, which is that Cretaceous extinction. So on all of those fronts, I find it to be just such a fascinating creature. And um, I'm hoping that we find more of them soon. I did hear that a block with some six to eight Utah raptors was just 
pulled out of a quarry recently. Yeah. So I definitely am looking forward to a lot more information on that particular group of dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be a good one. I think Jim Kirkland's the one working on that and he's had it for a little while, but they're now doing a crowdfunding thing because they've been struggling Mm. to get funding to try to get working on it. I'll make sure to share that with me and I'll share it onwards. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Oh, well, thank you, Garrett. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and talking. And this is the first time anyone's asked us questions, which was really fun. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. That's fun for me too. Great. Well, thank you very much. Is there Mm -hmm. anything you want to share, like a Twitter or anything like that, where you want to share your work? Yeah, well, my website is the easiest place, which is arirudenko.com. And maybe you can share a link to my site on your site and the podcast. And Fata Morgana Dance Theater is the name of my dance theater company and project. And that has a Facebook as well. So uh, that's Fata Morgana, F-A-T-A. M-O-R-G-A-N-A, Dance Theater, and just plug that into Facebook and it'll find it. But my website is the home for all of these projects. Great. Well, thanks for talking to me. It was very interesting. I was looking forward yeah. to it for a while when people would ask, because I often you know, tell people I have a dinosaur podcast and they say, oh, what do you do? I'll use your, your work as an example like people do a lot of things with dinosaurs and they'll be like, well, what do they do other than like dig them up? And I'm like, there's this guy mm-hmm. who's <laughs> working on a dance to look like a Dakotaraptor. <laughs> that sounds so awesome. Great. I'm glad you're enthusiastic. And uh, yeah, I mean, right now I'm in this process of looking for funding. I'm uh, sending in a couple of grants. The synopsis on the Ghost of Hell Creek that I sent to you was mm-hmm. a Alfred Peace Loan Foundation Public Understanding of Science grant. So yeah, I'm keep you in the loop in the uh, process of development here, and I definitely do look forward to building this up. And hopefully, next time I'm back on your uh, podcast, I can be sharing something more concrete that can be watched here in the states. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Good luck with all the grant applications and everything. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks, Garrett. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again, Ari, for sitting down and speaking with us via Skype. It was a really interesting interview. It's the first time we've talked to anybody about dinosaur dance, so it's really cool to hear the different challenges and things that you can accomplish by doing that unique dance style. Yeah, and we enjoyed watching the YouTube videos. Oh, yeah, they're great. And now for our Dinosaur of the Day, Archaeopteryx, which was a request from Garrett via Facebook. So thanks, Garrett. You're welcome. Not this, not you, Garrett. <laughs> Different Garrett. <laughs> the joke never gets old. I hope this Garrett keeps requesting things. <laughs> Spells his name differently. But that doesn't, you can't tell on a podcast. I guess. <laughs> anyway. Archaeopteryx is sometimes referred to its German name, Irvigel, which means original bird or first bird. And the name Archaeopteryx means ancient feather or ancient wing. It was a bird-like dinosaur, transitional between non-avian feathered dinosaurs and modern birds. And for a long time, between the late 19th century and early 21st century, it was thought to be the oldest known bird. And now that title may belong to others, such as Anchiornis, Chiatingia, and Oronis. 
The type species is Archaeopteryx lithographica, and there's two main species, so Archaeopteryx lithographica and Archaeopteryx simensi. This is based on a review of all specimens in 2007, though there have been dozens of species names published. Archaeopteryx lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Germany, and was named in 1861 based on a single feather, and then later that year the first complete specimen was announced, or nearly complete. So 12 specimens have been found all near Solnhofen, Germany, and most of them have impressions of feathers. These are advanced flight feathers, which shows that feathers began evolving before the late Jurassic. Yeah, which if you think about it is pretty early in dinosaur evolution, considering it was the late Triassic when things really started going that by like early Jurassic, you already had complex feathers. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. So... Hermann von Mayer described the single feather that was found in 1860 to 1861, and that feather is now at the Humboldt Museum for Naturkunde in Berlin. However, that feather may actually belong to another species, since it looks a bit different from other specimens. The first Archaeopteryx skeleton is known as the London specimen and was found in 1861 in Germany and given to local physician Karl Heberlein in return for medical services. Which I can't imagine that working today. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't give up. Well, I guess it depends what kind of medical service you needed. Yeah. So he ended up selling it for 700 pounds to the Natural History Museum in London, where it still is today. I got it for a steal. Oh, in 1861? Sure. Mm -hmm. Although I guess, a, didn't a pound used to mean like an actual pound of silver? <laughs> I don't know if it's if they were still in the silver standard in 1861. But 700 he pounds is definitely a made a pretty penny off of it. Yeah. <laughs> so Richard Owen described it as Archaeopteryx macrura in 1863. And this one's missing most of its head and neck. And said that it might not be the same species as the feather. And it became a synonym in 1951 when Gavin de Beer treated the London specimen, previously named Archaeopteryx macrura, as the holotype, instead of the one with just the feather. And Swinton backed him up in 1960. In 2007, two groups of scientists petitioned the ICZN that the London specimen be the holotype or neotype so that all species keep the Archaeopteryx name, since the original feather seems to have different sizes and proportions and may belong to another theropod where only the feather is known. And after four years, the London specimen was designated the neotype in 2011. Hooray! When the ICZN ruled in favor of the neotype, they suppressed alternative names for Archaeopteryx, so those became synonyms. So some scientists think all specimens belong to Archaeopteryx lithographica. Uh, there are some differences, but some think it's because of different ages of the specimens instead of diversity. Sounds familiar. Yep. Jacob Niemeyer discovered the Berlin specimen in 1874 or 1875 and then sold the fossil to buy a cow in 1876 to Johann Dorr, an innkeeper, who then sold it to Ernst Otto Haberlin, the son of Karl Haberlin. There's some pretty funny transactions going on with Archaeopteryx specimens. Yep. <laughs> it went on sale between 1877 and 1881, and the Humboldt Museum for Naturkum bought it for 20,000 gold mark. It's the most complete specimen and was described in 1884 by Wilhelm Dames, and it was the first one found with a complete head. And Dames named it a new species, Archaeopteryx simensi, in 1897, and it's often seen as a synonym of Archaeopteryx lithographica, though several recent studies have found it to be a distinct species. 
There's also the Maxburg specimen, which is just a torso, and it was found in 1956 and described by Florian Heller in 1959, and it's missing a head and tail, and it once was on exhibit at Maxburg Museum in Solnhofen, but it's now missing. Edward Optich owned it and loaned it to the museum until 1974, and then when he died in 1991, it was found to be missing, either stolen or sold. Hmm. There's also the Harlem specimen, also known as the Taylor specimen, and it was found in 1855, and Mayer described it as Pterodactylus crassipus in 1857, but then John Ostrom reclassified it in 1970. It was the first archaeopteryx specimen found, technically, but it was incorrectly classified. So now it's at the Taylor's Museum in the Netherlands, and it consists of only limb bones, cervical vertebrae, and ribs. There's also the Eichstatt specimen, found in 1951, and Peter Vellenhofer described it in 1974, and it's now at the Jura Museum in Germany. And it may possibly be a different genus, as Juraterix recurva, or different species, Archaeopteryx recurva. Next is the Solnhofen specimen, which was found in the 1970s, and Peter Vellhofer described it in 1988. Originally, it was classified as Compsognathus. It's the largest specimen known and may be a different genus, Vellhoforia grandis. Yeah, I like that mix-up because it's a really good way to explain how Archaeopteryx and how dinosaurs went from land creatures to flying creatures that just looking at this Archaeopteryx slightly differently could look like a Compsognathus, which is just a little, you know, carnivorous, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like a little chicken kind of looking thing without wings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Archaeopteryx has an interesting history and pretty complex. Yeah. There is also a Munich specimen that was found in 1992, and Peter Wellhofer described it in 1993. It's at the Paleontologisches Museum in Munich, and only the front of the face is missing. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Then there's the dating specimen found in 1990, and it was on display at the Munich Mineral Show in 2009. It may be a new species since it was found in a limestone bed a few hundred thousand years younger than other specimens. The Burgermeister Mueller specimen that was found in 2000 is known as the, quote, chicken wing because it's a fragment of a single wing. That's pretty weak. Funny name, though. Yeah. (laughs) And there's the Thermopolis specimen, which was described in 2005 and donated to the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopolis, Wyoming. And it shows Archaeopteryx did not have a reversed toe, which birds have, so it would not have been easy to perch on branches and may have had a more terrestrial or trunk climbing lifestyle, which is evidence of theropod ancestry. Gregory Paul said he found evidence of a hyperextensible second toe in 1988, but this wasn't widely accepted until the Thermopolis specimen, which was named Archaeopteryx simensi in 2007. The 11th Archaeopteryx specimen doesn't yet have a name, but was announced in 2011 and described in 2014, and it's privately owned. And there was a 12th specimen found in 2010 and announced in 2014, though that hasn't yet been formally described. Hmm. So Archaeopteryx is considered to be a link between birds and non-avian dinosaurs. The type specimen was found two years after Charles Darwin published on the origin of species and seemed to confirm Darwin's theories and be evidence for the origin of birds. Coincidence? (laughs) Or a grand conspiracy? I don't know. (laughs) So... 
Darwin wrote, quote, the fossil bird with the long tail and fingers to its wings is by far the greatest fossil of recent times, end quote. Johann Andreas Wagner, who was an anti-evolutionist, proposed in the 1860s that the name Archaeopteryx should be Gryphosaurus problematicus, which means problematic griffin lizard, because he thought that Darwin and others would use the name Archaeopteryx, quote, as justification of their strange views upon the transition of animals, <laughs> That they did. <laughs> And then in 1868, Thomas Huxley said that Archaeopteryx was an evolutionary link between birds and dinosaurs. Which reminds me of an SVP presentation that went through all of the science and technology that we used all to eventually find out that Thomas Huxley was right. Yep. About some of his theories. <laughs> it's always good to confirm things. Yeah. A hundred and, what is that, 150 years later, still standing up to science. It's pretty good. Yeah. People forgot about what Huxley said, though, with Gerhard Heilmann's The Origin of Birds in 1926, which said thecodonts were the ancestors of birds, and they're now considered obsolete taxonomic grouping. John Ostrom, following Huxley from back in 1968, argued in the 1970s that birds evolved from dinosaurs and that Archaeopteryx was similar to Dromaeosaurids. And Ostrom brought back the idea of the link between birds and dinosaurs when he described Anonychus in 1969. And in 1970, he analyzed Pterodactylus chrysippes and renamed it Archaeopteryx, which is the Harlem specimen. And he saw the relationship between Deinonychus and Archaeopteryx and started what's known as now the dinosaur renaissance. Archaeopteryx feathers were similar to modern day bird feathers. And Archaeopteryx may have been diurnal like most modern birds, but as I mentioned before, did not have a reverse toe like birds, according to a 2005 study. It probably wasn't the first ancestor of birds. It's not a true ancestor of modern birds, but a close relative of that ancestor. Still, it's often used as a model. In 2011, the discovery of Xiaotingia, a close relative, led to suggesting Archaeopteryx was a Deinonychosaur instead of an avialin, and not a bird. But a more thorough analysis soon after found Archaeopteryx to be at the base of Avilae and Chiotingia to be a basal dromaeosaurid or trudontid, though the authors of that study said that there's still uncertainties. In 2012, Center, Turner, McAvicki, and Norrell found that Archaeopteryx was more closely related to modern birds than dromaeosaurids and trudontids. But in 2013, Godefroy found Archaeopteryx to be more closely related to dromaeosaurids and trudontids based on the description of Eosinoteryx, Brevipenna. In 2013, Anglin and Nova said that Archaeopteryx and the possibly synonymous Vanhoferia were the basalmost avialins. So, a lot of back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> Archaeopteryx had feathers, and the feathers may have been used for insulation or possibly flight. Some feather traces in the Berlin specimen are similar to Cenosauroteryx, which may have looked more like fur than feathers in life, though their microscopic structure is different. There's no feathers that have been found on the upper neck and head, though that may be just because of the way Archaeopteryx specimens have been preserved. The feathers on the neck and head may have come loose when the body rubbed against the seabed before it was buried, or the neck and head was mostly underwater when it floated to the surface of Archaeopteryx has been found in marine sediments, so the skin may have softened and then the feathers may have come loose. In 1985, Fred Hoyle, Lee Spetner, and others claimed that the feathers of the Berlin and London specimens were forged based on misinterpreting the fossils and not knowing the process of lithification. 
They also said other Archaeopteryx specimens did not have feathers, which was also incorrect. <laughs> and they said that the motives for the forgery were because Richard Owen wanted to support Darwin's theory of evolution, which is not likely because of Owen's own views. <laughs> the other possibility is that Owen wanted to discredit Darwin by setting a trap for him, but Owen actually wrote a detailed paper on the London specimen, so this is also not likely. Ryan, Carney, and colleagues did a color study of Archaeopteryx in 2011 using x-ray analysis and detected the structure of melanosomes in the single-feather specimen that was described in 1861. They then compared it to 87 modern bird species and found that it was probably the color black. This doesn't mean Archaeopteryx was completely black, but the black may have just partly covered the primary feathers on the wings. Yeah, and since that feather may or may not be Archaeopteryx. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. <laughs> So Archaeopteryx may have had complex colors or iridescent patterns based on basal birds and theropods. A study in 2013 further analyzed the feathers and found it may have had dark and light-colored feathers, and the tips of the flight feathers would have been mostly black, though later this was found to be incorrect, and that the single feather specimen was black with an even darker tip. Archaeopteryx flight feathers were asymmetrical and it had broad tail feathers, which means its feathers could give it lift, but it's not clear if Archaeopteryx flapped or glided. Philip Center in 2006 found that Archaeopteryx could not flap, but may have, quote, used a downstroke only flap assisted gliding technique. In, Interesting. Yeah. In 2010, Robert Nudds and Gareth analyzed the primary feathers of Confucius Ornus and Archaeopteryx and found they couldn't flap in flight, but Phil Curry and Louis Chiappi disagreed. Curry said they could probably fly to some extent since they were found in what was marine or lake sediments, so they could have flown over deep water. Gregory Paul also disagreed and said that Nuds and Dyke overestimated the mass of Confucius Ornia and Archaeopteryx, but Nud and Dyke stood by their conclusions. One possibility is they didn't truly fly, but instead their wings gave them extra lift while running over water, like the basilisk lizard. That'd be weird. That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. A little Compsignathus looking thing with feathers running across a river. Yeah. <laughs> so flightless birds tend to have symmetrical feathers and Archaeopteryx feathers were asymmetrical, though some flightless birds have asymmetrical feathers as well. In 2004, scientists did a detailed CT scan of an Archaeopteryx brain case and found it was larger than most dinosaurs and was big enough to fly. And it had good vision, hearing, and muscle coordination, as well as an inner ear structure that was more similar to modern birds than to non-avian reptiles. Archaeopteryx did not have a bony breastplate, so it was not a strong flyer, though its flight muscles may have attached to the wishbone, coracoids, or sternum. Archaeopteryx had relatively large wings, so it would have been slow and not had a big turning radius. It also had hind wings that may have helped it be more mobile and fly through trees and brush. Some scientists think that Archaeopteryx was a semi-arboreal animal that climbed, based on the trees-down hypothesis by Marsh that birds evolved from tree-dwelling gliders. Other scientists think Archaeopteryx ran quickly on the ground, based on the ground-up hypothesis by Samuel Wendell Williston that birds evolved from flight by running. And that's that wing-assisted incline running hypothesis. Yeah. They can run up steep things and develop wings that way. And others think that Archaeopteryx lived in the trees and on the ground, though didn't seem to have any features to specialize in running or perching. Hmm. Mystery. <laughs> in 2002, Elzanowski said Archaeopteryx may have used its wings to get away from predators and glided with some downstrokes to get to higher trees or go further by gliding down from cliffs or trees. Archaeopteryx 
possibly lived on islands surrounded by shallow seas and lagoons with some cycads and conifers, not many tall trees, but the plants may have been large enough for gliding from. Where Archaeopteryx specimens were found did not have many trees when Archaeopteryx lived, so they may not have climbed large trees, though that doesn't mean that they didn't have an arboreal lifestyle, because maybe they lived in low shrubs. Archaeopteryx is similar to dromaeosaurids and trudontids. They had sharp teeth, three fingers with claws, a long bony tail, feathers, and a killing claw on their second toes, which it would keep off the ground when running. They probably hunted small prey using jaws or claws. They're about the size of a raven with a long tail, and they grew to be about 1 foot 8 inches or half a meter long. Based on a 2009 study, Archaeopteryx took two years and eight months to grow to adult size, which is slow growth compared to other primitive birds. Yeah, and slow compared to modern birds, too. Mm-hmm. In 2009, Erickson, Norrell, Jong, and others estimate that Archaeopteryx grew slowly compared to modern birds, assuming all known Archaeopteryx specimens were juveniles. If true, this would be similar to the kiwi bird, and Archaeopteryx and kiwis may have similar basal metabolic rates. That's uh, Kiwis have been popping up more and more in our discussions. <laughs> They're great. I, I like them. I can't think of any bird that's less like the traditional view of a dinosaur than a kiwi bird. <laughs> <laughs> so kiwi birds could take apparently five years to reach maturity. What are they maturing into? They're just this armless thing with a beak. They got stuff going on. They get (laughs) more (laughs) pear-shaped as they grow up. I don't know. Anyway, Archaeopteryx is in the game arc, and in that game it often flees when there's conflict. You can also see Archaeopteryx in the 2009 film Ice Age 3 Dawn of the Dinosaurs. And in 2001, a Swiss power glider was named the... Ripperdarchaeopteryx. The main belt asteroid found in 1991 was named 9860 Archaeopteryx. There's also an outdoor clothing and sporting goods brand called Archaeopteryx. And the this is, I think, the funniest one. So there's a play from 1897, Alfred Jerry's play, and it's called Ubu Kaku Olarchaeopteryx, which is Ubu Kakolded or the Archaeopteryx, and it features Archaeopteryx as a character. So it's this nonsensical avant-garde comedy where the wife of the protagonist gives birth to an Archaeopteryx offstage. (laughs) That is avant-garde. Yep. So Archaeopteryx is classified as Archaeopteryxidae. And that is a group of Manoraptoran dinosaurs that lived in the Jurassic. It only contains Archaeopteryx. And Max Furbringer named the order... Archaeopterygiforms in 1888 to contain the family Archaeopterygidae and the genus Archaeopteryx. Just in case. Yes. Somebody wants to talk about the family. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that unlike Dakota Raptor, Ovaraptor has no relation to Dromaeosaurids, which often have the name Raptor in their name. In both cases, raptor was chosen to mean to seize and carry off, or thief, giving Ovaraptor the unfortunate nickname meaning egg thief, but we explain in episode 78 that that's kind of harsh since it was believed to just have been brooding eggs, and now it's like forever named egg thief when it was more like egg protector. <laughs> <laughs> but it is probably more fitting for animals like Dakota raptor and things that probably did do some 
thievery. Maybe. Yeah. And I think they're also named that because they have big, you know, talons, basically. <laughs> like how modern raptor birds, you know, are birds of prey. And they were like birds of prey before dinosaurs were birds. So, Yep. Cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy listening to our podcasts, then help us keep this going. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.